That's a long time, dude. Dude, yeah, we did the, the A24 tier list. What movie came out number one? No spoilers, Zach. You're going to have to listen. Oh, you, oh, oh, damn. That's some inside <laughs> trading. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Movies Last Night. So who's joining me on the call? Zach's on the call. And Jason. Hey Jason, it's been a while. How are you doing? Been pretty good. My schedule doesn't exactly allow for me to record very often with you guys, but it's good to get in every now and then. Oh yeah, for sure. It's super good to have you back on the show. Um, Jason, now is a good opportunity if you want to mention your tie-dye business, because I was thinking about this today. I mean, we don't do any advertising, so why not advertise people on the podcast? So do you want to say anything about your company? Jason is very talented. For sure. I appreciate that, guys. Yeah, so uh, I've been uh, getting into doing some tie-dyes these, uh, lately these days. Um, I've been doing it for a few months now, and I'm actually going to be at the Fairview Arts and Crafts Fair uh, that's going to be occurring on October the 8th, which is a Saturday. It starts at 9 a.m. and goes all the way to 4 p.m. Uh, so I'll have a booth out there where I'll be selling my shirts. Uh, so if you want to drop on by and say hello, and I can always pass on word to everybody else in the movies last night crew, so you can come on out and show us your love. Awesome. And that's this coming Saturday? No, it's it's on uh, October the 8th. So it's about two weeks out. Huge recommend for Jason Shirts. I own one. I think Zach owns multiples. I got three of them so far. Almost one for every day of the week. You got to get one for every day of the week. I'm aiming for it. Guys, this might be a little bit of a retread. So a little while back, Jason and I, with our page to picture series, which we, we are going to get back into, we covered Death on the Nile. Yes. And when we covered Death on the Nile, I did a little bit of a, a rundown on what a whodunit was. Um, but I'm going to give us a refresher just because everybody's here. And then if anybody hasn't listened to that episode, please go back and listen to that episode. It's a great one. So I'm just going to read out a little description so we can talk about this this genre of movie and novels actually too. So a whodunit, a colloquial elision of who has done it, is a complex plot-driven variety of detective fiction in which the puzzle regarding who committed the crime is the main focus. The reader or viewer is provided with the clues to the case from which the identity of the perpetrator may be deduced before the story provides the revelation at its climax. The investigation is usually conducted by an eccentric, amateur, or semi-professional detective. I love the... Um, the semi-professional. Is there such a thing as a semi-professional detective? Either you are professional or you aren't, surely. Well, if you're not a, a little bit of a klutz, then it's not as entertaining. What would you say are like, some of the biggest hallmarks of this this genre? Well, I can say my favorite whodunit of all time has to be Clue. Oh, yeah. It, that's the classic. It's it's just, it's really good. I, I like how every how uh, how it's portrayed. I mean, it's, it's also based off the board game, so that's just, you know, fun that you can take home with you and relive it however you want yeah it's a great movie jason i was actually going to rewatch that before we did this episode just to get it out of the way with you know what the movie we're going to be talking about because it's on the name of the podcast that you clicked on today we're going to be covering the 2022 release see how they run zach and i went to see it last week and i think jason you went to see it either before or after us correct met up for it i didn't tell him that i was the one that bought the seat right next to him so for reals? Yeah, I thought some stranger was sitting next to me. It freaked me out for a second. That's hilarious. I had no idea. That's so funny. Yeah, I thought some creeper was going to just be trailing me the whole movie. 
<laughs> yeah, I told him bring something for self-defense. So like on the AMC Stubbs app, you just deliberately booked the ticket right next to him and he was probably checking it going, why did somebody book right next to me? Initially, I told him I was going to go in the afternoon. He said he couldn't do afternoon and he was going to do evening, but here's the seat that he chose anyways. And so I just didn't respond at all and just booked the ticket right next to him. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story. That's amazing. I went again last night to the movies. I actually booked another ticket to see it. I went and I sat down and it was about 7.30 at the Bellevue AMC, which means nothing to anybody else other than us three on this podcast. But um, I, I got in there and I sat down and I started feeling really tired and I made it through the credits and then I just got up and left. <laughs> oh. I was like, I need to go back home to bed. I'm too tired. <laughs> That's not an indication of what I think of the movie. Quite the opposite, but uh, yeah. Yeah, we all, we all heard it here. He, he walked out. He walked out of the movie. It's not the first time I've done it with my AMC stub subscription because sometimes I'm like, I have a few tickets left to fill during the week and I'm like, well, I'll just go and see something. And then I sit down and I'm like, oh, I want to do something else. So I'll just get up and leave. <laughs> well, and then sometimes if like it is a movie you've seen and you're, you're into seeing it a second time about 20 minutes before you show up there. And then by the time you get there, your mind is just totally like, yes, I got, I want to do something else now. So that's understandable. Going back to the whodunit genre, I think there's a couple of like subgenres within it, you know. So I think I I don't know. There's actually a, a term for this, but there is the the type of whodunit where the detective will keep everybody in one fixed location, like Clue, for example. But that's also not a hard and fast rule, as you'll find when we talk about see how they run, because it kind of starts off like that and then it kind of veers and everybody goes around doing their own thing. So it actually opens up the genre. So a lot of movies actually technically fit a whodunit. You probably wouldn't necessarily think fit it. Um, so let's go around. Jason, you already said Clue. Zach, we're going to do our top three whodunits. Zach, what have you got? My first one, definitely after seeing see how they run, because there's some points that are similar is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. 1988, Robert Zemeckis. Yep, classic. Bob Hoskins plays similar to uh, the way Sam Rockwell plays his character, Stoppard. It's kind of that run-down detective, kind of been in the, the job too long. But then you've got uh, Roger Rabbit, who's like this crazy, just hyper-energy, gung-ho. Uh, and it's just 1947's Hollywood. There's a murder involving a... Acme cartoon uh, owner, and it just goes from there. It's got the same kind of feel. You know, they're looking for clues. They're moving from suspect to suspect. Uh, it just has that overall humor too. It's a very, it's a comedy movie, but with a detective, old school detective feel with like kind of the background music with the trumpets and the saxophones and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah, it's an excellent choice. Such a great movie. Such a great movie. I think it's on Disney Plus right now. And I think you can, because it was a Touchstone Pictures release, which is owned by Disney. And I think it's on Disney Plus, And I think it's the 4K version of it. If anybody's Ooh. listening and want to check it out again. I think I watched it not so long, but it's really good. That probably looks great in 4K for sure. Did it, either of you see that movie in the cinema when it came out? House 3. Yeah, no, I didn't. I went to see it at the cinema and there is, I don't know if it's in, it might, I think it is in on the DVD version of it, but at the beginning of the movie, it opens with the actual Roger Rabbit cartoon, you know, with the little baby where he's chasing the baby around the house and the baby's like dodging knives and all that crazy shit. And I remember seeing it at the theater and being like, it was the first time I'd 
seen a movie where I was expecting the movie just to start in it, in it ha- and like that whole thing felt like super new to me because I was like, oh wait, they're showing a cartoon now. Basically, how it works is at the end of the cartoon, the director's like cut, and then you 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 realize that he's. It's just a really good way to take the animated characters and then all of, like to introduce the, them in the real world. It's a really clever way of doing it. It's really good. Yeah, I mean, I was a kid, seven or eight, and that blew my mind when it switches from cartoon to the movie set. I, that was some crazy shit for me. Yeah, it's so good. There's not there's not been many movies done it. I think Cool World did it. Space Jam. Space Jam. Yep, correct. I wish they would do it more. I wish they would do it with like that traditional style cell animation and and do it more because it's such a cool aesthetic. I agree. Do you think uh, was it Mary Poppins? Was that like the first one that kind of did that? Or? Oh yes, Mary Poppins does use it. You're correct. So does Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Mm-hmm. Does Pete's Dragon? Pete's Dragon. Yes. Is that too? Yeah, Disney were kind of rocking that for a little while. Uh, yeah, Jason. I I don't know who the first person, the the first movie that did it was. I don't know. It might be Mary Poppins. It'd be interesting to find out. Yeah. Do you think that's like a Disney invention that they patented or something? It's so clever. It's really good. And you know what's cool about that movie too? When did you say that movie came out, Zach? Uh, 1988. 1988. So you know what's really awesome about that movie is it still holds up. The visuals hold up. There's just something about the the hand-drawn animations that that's it's never really going to go out of style. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I wish Disney would do more of it. 100%. So for me, my number one pick would be Scream by the great Wes Craven from 1996. So jumping forward a little bit in time there, very much a whodunit, but framed around within the slasher genre. And then also very meta, one of the first, probably the first movie that I saw that was dealing with, you know, like a, it was so very self-aware. I think probably as a younger person, I didn't really appreciate it. And I thought it was fun, but over time now, it's only just improved with age for me. I don't really care much for the sequels, but the first one, just all-time classic. Yeah, for sure. Especially after watching the newest one. You know, I think a lot of us went back and watched it. And yeah, it's uh, it's pretty pretty great whodunit. Especially if nobody's ever seen that right now. Go see it. It's got a good uh, twist to it. And I can recommend the new movie too. Zach and I, we both watched that in the theater, didn't we? Yeah, I can recommend it. It's good. I think it's probably the best of the sequels. Oh, yes. I, yeah, I'd agree with that compared to some of the other ones. For sure. Okay, Jason, over to you. I would actually say that um, this this one that we just saw, see how they run. That's probably my number two. Yeah, and that's all I can say. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> well, you've already said you like it. That in that case, yeah. so we know that you really like it. <laughs> Zach, back to you. So my number two is since we watched see how they run. This immediately popped up. Uh, I read this book in grade school and high school British literature class, and the movie, 45, movie's great, and it's called And Then There Were None, also known as Ten Little Indians back in the day. Similar premise, but not. Uh, Short synopsis, eight people get invited to a isolated island off the coast of England. There are two servants there. They are requested to sit down in this dining hall, and on the table are ten little Indian figurines. A magical a voice comes over in the com, accuses them all of murder and the ways that they did it. And then from there you go. It's really the movie's really good, 1945. Uh, it's the best one out of them. They've made a number of iterations of and then there were none. But this one has to me the the creepiest, mysterious feel to it. So and the book's great too. Yeah, that's a great pick. Really good pick. I haven't seen it. I'm saying it's a great pick, but I haven't seen it. But it sounds good. It sounds like someone I'd enjoy for sure. I am going to go with Ryan Johnson's debut movie, Brick, from 2005. Ah, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. 
Yeah, starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt. What's interesting about this is this movie kind of melds the whodunit with a modern take on the noir story. What's really clever about it is it's set within a high school and the dialogue for the movie is so expertly written. Interesting that he actually went back to make Knives Out later on in his career and it looks like that's what he's going to be doing for the future because he's doing Knives Out 2 and 3, I believe. You can kind of see his love and affection for the genre within Brick. It's just excellent. Like I said, the script is just superb. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is incredible in the movie. What's kind of sad for me is I didn't really know him too much from Third Rock from the Sun, which is the sitcom that is very popular, that I guess that's why he got his start in his career. Um, But when I saw him in Brick, I've always been kind of disappointed that he's never really built off that. I do like him in Ryan Johnson's movie Looper. He's good in that movie too. And a few other things, he's never really took off the way I wanted him to take off. At least he's never really made the movies that I was kind of hoping he would make after this. But still, yeah, really, really good movie. Great mystery. That character is just, he does so well as that character too. Perfect casting. Actually, the casting of the whole movie is excellent. Highly, highly recommend that movie. Yeah, I remember working at Hollywood Video when that came out. Every one of us was on our pick section. We were like, brick, brick, brick is the movie. It was like the cool movie to see for sure. Uh, It still is, still is. I have to give it a shot because I've never actually seen it. Yeah, you should definitely watch it. I don't know where it's streaming anywhere right now. Well, if all else fails, I'll just rent it. I mean, three bucks, it's worth it probably. (laughs) 100%. Definitely. So my number three would probably be uh, Murder on the Orange Express. I really enjoyed that one, both the book and the film. Are you speaking about the the most recent, the Kenneth Branagh version? Yes. Yeah, it's the only one I've seen. (laughs) Zach, back to you. So my last pick is, it's something that was hilarious to me a couple years back when it came out it's called game night it's got jason bateman and rachel mcadams basically they set up a a game night with their friends and then something happens to where ends up being that it ends up being real or not real and they have to go on this adventure with their friends to find the clues and solve if this really did happen or if it's part of this hardcore you know, murder mystery game that they're taking place in. So if anybody's looking for a lighthearted comedy, that movie's pretty hysterical. I didn't even think of that. Awesome. Okay. So I'm going to go pretty traditional with this pick. While it's not being an Agatha Christie, it's definitely inspired by Agatha Christie, but in terms of like the traditional whodunit murder mystery set within one location in England at a stately home, I'm going to go with Gosford Park, which was directed by Robert Altman. And I think, when did this movie come out? 2001. This movie is beautiful, first and foremost, and and it's very traditional in the sense of its time period setting during the 1930s. Basically, it's in a a massive stately home. So kind of the, in a way you can kind of see where like Downton Abbey came from. It's a long line of these movies, but it has the traditional upstairs, downstairs, where you'd have like the wealthy socialites dining and, and then you'd have, you'd follow the staff too, who like obviously work downstairs and bring the food up. So you have like that whole connection between is it could be somebody from the staff? Is it one of the, the rich socialites who are attending the event? It's very, very good, very traditional, really, really good. And it and it's probably for me like the quintessential whodunit murder mystery. And this movie, when I worked at Blockbuster Zach, I remember this when this movie came out and I was something I would always see people rent and I and I return it and like I obviously stack the shelves. You might have had this if you like regularly rented at a video store, but specifically if you work at a video store too, there's something about some covers for like VHS tapes that for some reason you kind of became obsessed with the movie just because of the artwork. The poster and the artwork for the VHS is uh, really, really great. And it just kind of always stuck with me in my head. So when I eventually got around to watching it, you know, it became one of those like regular rentals for me. 
that happened all the time working in the video store for sure. I mean, I think to to me that's why stuff like SLC Punk got the views it did because it's got a very interesting cover to it. It's got the green and orange, but it's also got Matthew Lillard with the blue hair. So like when that came out, that got a lot of play time because I think the cover helped it. Oh no, 100% did. Like I remember always looking at the cover for Ghoulies. You remember that movie Ghoulies? The <laughs> yeah. Movie? It's kind of like just burnt into my brain, the art for that. I mean, Mothman Prophecies got me watching just because it had a cool, cool figure on the front of it. Yeah, it's a good movie too. Let's talk a little bit about the movie of the day. See how they run, released in 2022. I think it came out probably about a week and a half ago in the theaters, very recently. It's a mystery comedy film directed by Tom George, written by Mark Chappell and produced by Damian Jones and Gina Carter. The film stars Sam Rockwell, I'm going to murder her name and I always do it. I think it's Shershe, Shershe Ronan, Adrian Brody, Ruth Wilson, Reese Shearsmith, who you might know from the incredible League of Gentlemen, the British television uh, comedy, I think it was like a BBC Two comedy. One of my favorite comedic actors for sure. Harris Dickinson and David Oyelowo. I think it's how I pronounce his name. Before we go any further and we start giving our general impressions, I kind of want to throw it around the room. Did anybody know about this movie in advance? Because I didn't. Not at all. Me neither. Nothing. Whenever you had suggested that we might do an episode on this, uh, I didn't even watch the trailer. Like I, I booked the ticket, went and sat down in the seat next to Zach, looked at him and said, I have no idea what the heck I'm about to watch. <laughs> That's how Zach and I did it. Yeah. I mean, all I saw was going through AMC app, trying to use up my free A-list uh, tickets. And you click the box with the movie. I saw the picture and just Sam Rockwell on the front. I was like, all right, I'll book this. And then we went. Yeah. So I didn't have any preconceived notions at all. Don't you love that though? It's one of the very few times that's happened to me. Just like you guys, I just, I was like, oh, well, I don't need to watch the trailer at all. And I love that because when I sat down and the movie started, it was all fresh. Everything was fresh. Unlike The Invitation or bloody any of those movies that are out right, coming out right now where I've seen the trailer probably like 35 times. So very refreshing. But they didn't even show it at AMC ahead of movies because we would have seen it by the amount of times that we go. I was watching, just watching the HBO first look before we came on and I'm watching all the filmmakers. They're all wearing masks still. So I think this might've been a pandemic movie that just got shelved for a while and then they just released it and didn't really give a lot of promotion to it. That's a shame because it's really good. I'm not familiar with the director at all. And what's interesting is when I go to find out any information on him on Wikipedia, he doesn't have anything linked on Wikipedia. So this may be his first movie. Well, that's impressive. If I had to guess, and this is a total wild guess, I think he came from TV. Or theater, perhaps. Yeah, it feels a little bit like a TV movie, this. Uh, obviously, a high-budget TV movie. To follow up with what you said, Zach, the film was announced in November 2020. Oh, okay. They finished filming it in April 2021. So yeah, they probably did it right, started it right in the middle of the pandemic. Or right when like some of the restrictions went down a bit. Yeah, so they could start filming. Yeah, I think you may be right with the TV thing, because the way he's cut this movie, it's got really like short kind of scenes, and then it goes to another short kind of scene. It doesn't really have a whole lot of long, you know, f like film scenes that you would expect. Yeah, it feels like a TV movie. It does. It really does. Um, and that I'm not saying that as a bad thing. I'm, I, no, oh, I, no, I actually quite like the pacing of it. Yeah. 
Guys, any particular favorite Sam Rockwell performances? Because I think he's just such an enigmatic actor. Um, I would say my two favorite would be Matchstick Men and Moon. I do love both of those movies. Uh, Moon is just a really good, just a take on isolation and psychology and how your mind can just go all sorts of places and come up with the realities and stuff like that. Um, Magic Man is just a really good, him and Nick Cage are good back and forth on that. Uh, you know how terrible I am with actors. I mean, I, I thought I, I could have ask. seen, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of you, but you know me, I could have seen a hundred of his movies and not know. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he plays the crazy Nickelback looking king. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Didn't know that was him. Got it. <laughs> well, that's the thing about Sam Rockwell, though. He's been in a lot of movies. I would say Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, which is a George Clooney movie. I think George Clooney directed that movie. Great movie. He's excellent in it. And what's crazy about that is it's also loosely based on a real story, I believe. Definitely check that one out if you haven't seen it. And then I would probably say most recently, or the last big, big movie he was in outside of Jojo Rabbit, he was uh, really good in Three Billboards. Oh, that's right. He is in there. He's excellent in that movie. Very dynamic. Uh, he has a great look. Yeah, so that's all I needed to know. Sam Rockwell was in the movie. You got my ticket. With all of that being said, let's go around and start with you, Jason. What were your initial impressions of the movie? I loved it. It was it was it was very charming in how lighthearted it was while still revolving around very dark themes. So it, it, it never took itself too seriously, which is something that I really enjoyed. But um, yeah, no, that, that and the humor, that and the humor, like it was such a funny movie and it's my kind of humor too. Like I hate like the Will Ferrell, like I'm stupid, laugh at me. This much was very much wit oriented. Yeah, it feels, dare I say it, quite adult in a way. The humor's mature and it doesn't feel like childish or silly. And I think the, the 1953 era, you know, you're restrained by kind of where you can go with the humor just because of the, you know, the era that they lived in and stuff in terms of risque humor is not risque to us now. You know, it was, a, it was a little more subdued, but it was like Jason said, it was wit and it was perfectly timed type of humor. Zach, we've already started. Let's hear the rest of your thoughts. I thoroughly enjoyed it beginning to end. Um, we already talked about there was no hype or preconceptions. I didn't realize it was an Agatha Christie movie until a certain scene. They use one of her plays, The Mousetrap. I didn't realize she was going to be a part of the movie, like the storyline and stuff like that. So that kind of made me feel not happy or excited that it was going to be um, her involved in or anything like that. But just looking forward to a, a whodunit that wasn't going to be a vulgar, overly violent, uh, heavy, or any kind of like super onion layered social messaging thing that you really have to like, you can't enjoy the movie because you're sitting there trying to figure out what everything means, like in terms of every particular scene. Um, and I felt like as a moviegoer, I needed this. And I think uh, the, we all loved it because it was refreshing. And because we've had so many serious movies right now in theaters that we've all seen this year and they're really great, but they're really heavy, you know, the A24 stuff. Um, so coming out of this movie, it was one of the few times this year that I felt excited to recommend a movie just based on how fun it was and how lighthearted and how it was a cool whodunit. It had a lot of good humor. The cast was great because they all had their own nefarious storyline that kind of made you 
invest and maybe they could have been the one that did. it gave you enough plausible reason that even though whatever part of the movie you were watching you still thought oh maybe they could have done it even though you know you don't want to jump to conclusions so to speak don't jump to conclusions that's right i jumped to conclusions multiple times i think that's why i liked it because you got into it it was fun and the writers gave yeah each and a lot of it was duos you had a lot of two two part scenes with the same two people so I just thought the cast was great and it had the great humor. Um, but I thought Stoppard and Stalker, Sam Rockwell and sorry, C. Ronan, uh, they just made the movie so great. They were just, they were fantastic. So yeah, this movie, highly, highly recommend. Obviously for the show, I watch a lot of movies and I also tend to gravitate towards movies with a darker subject matter, convoluted or like complex movies, just because it's fun to do for the podcast, you know, because there's more to talk about. This movie was like a breath of fresh air to sit down and enjoy something that was breezy and light and it didn't feel too serious or it wasn't taking itself too serious. But what's clever about this movie is this movie can get a lot more complicated if you choose to, to follow it. it. plays on two levels because if you just take it on its face value and you have these quirky characters and then the setting and the the whole, very, it's very British obviously. And if you just take it on that surface level as a standard murder mystery, then it works. The movie totally works. But what's really clever about the movie, the movie's actually pretty meta. And the movie's actually also very much having a conversation about the kind of movie that it's making. So it's with the Agatha, the inclusion of Agatha Christie's play, The Mousetrap, being performed on stage, and then the movie itself being intertwined with the actual story of The Mousetrap. And not only that, the ending of the movie, this isn't too much of a spoiler, but the ending of the movie, like in parts of the movie, also mirroring what's happening on stage with what's happening outside is very, very clever. It's very, very clever. And the more you think about it, like you can get deeper and deeper with it. So I think it works on a bunch of different levels. It was refreshing to be able to sit down and watch a movie and just be like, I'm just being entertained. It's just entertaining from start to finish. The performances are really good, really light, quirky, uh, very twee. I would say this movie is very twee. It, it definitely, it fits right in for me. And we were talking about TV. And the reason I, I keep bringing up TV too, because this is the kind of, it's a little more more complicated, obviously it's a bit more postmodernist take on the, this genre, but it, it also felt very much to me like a lot of those BBC Two or like Channel Four growing up in England, the kind of TV movies that would play a lot of Agatha Christie TV movies. It felt very much like one of those. This is the kind of movie I would sit down with my grandmother and watch when I was growing up. Shesha Ronan, I think, is a delight in this movie. A revelation to me. I always knew she was a great actress and obviously with Lady Bird and even when she jumped on the scene with the movie Hannah, which is an excellent movie, which I definitely recommend to people. Not the TV show, but the movie. Just her career and seeing her grow up and then develop into like this really talented woman. She is kind of like the heart and soul of this movie. Her character, and she's really the character that we latch onto the most. Sam Rockwell's character is presented as, but it's really her that we latch onto, which I think is really great. Going back again to what we were saying about not watching the trailer, I didn't realize Adrian Brody was in this movie. So when I heard his voice at the beginning, then when I saw him, I literally turned to Zach and I was like, oh my God, Adrian Brody's in this movie. I love him. I think he's excellent in this movie. Everybody's excellent in the movie. Huge recommend. Huge, huge, huge recommend. Try and see it on the big screen. I don't think it's a necessity to see this in a theater. It's not like Avatar 2 where you want to see it on the biggest screen. I think it would be nice to try and support these people and try and get some money for this movie. So if it's still showing in a theater near you, please rush out and see it because I don't think you're going to regret your purchase. And I will say that 
the screen that we saw it on, you know, it wasn't DL, it wasn't digital or Dolby, Dolby, whatever. When I watched the HBO first look, you know, it's on my TV in 4K and stuff like. I actually preferred to see it on the screen rather than in like the super HD. It just came across different as more of a film, whereas the HD you definitely get that kind of TV kind of quality look where it's it's just really high def. Uh, but I just want to say real quick about what you said um, with them being clever about the the meta and the layers. That's how clever they were. Is that they smoothly showed you that this was taking place within a, a theater within you know them doing this play so i felt like i wasn't out of the loop at all like they were really smooth with how they transitioned from the the play to the actual movie part and stuff like that so it's being very clever without kind of telling you that it's being very clever also in a way that you just understand what's happening and i think that's a great magic trick to be able to pull that off no without a doubt and one more thing about that really stuck with me at the movie, you know, we were talking about pace. I feel like, you know, in between them going to each, you know, investigation, whatever they're going to, the little blue car and the music, just that little band swing music, that World War II era music kind of thing, you know, they're about to go on a quick adventure. They're going to the next investigate. It, that really kept it going in terms of keeping it energy and keeping it fun. And, you know, it just had that really good, uh, music pace to it as well. I'm not going to lie. I was waiting for that little blue car to break down the entire movie. <laughs> <laughs> I want it. I want it so bad. They build them to last in those days, Jason. That thing's probably still running now. Uh, you're, you're actually correct about that. <laughs> well, it is still running now because they used it in the movie. <laughs> so, yeah, That's yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So let me get this straight. Is Sam Rockwell doing an accent or is Sam Rockwell just doing, now I'm thinking about it, I'm like, did he put on an English accent? He must have done. He did. He did. He did a pretty good job because I, I didn't even think about it. He fooled the Brit, so he worked. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one of the things that sold it for me in terms of like believability is like he did do a nice low key, you know, British accent. Yeah, he definitely did. Now we're coming to think of it. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to take a break. And when we return, we're going to talk spoilers and kind of break down the plot a little bit as best we can. I've only seen it once and it's pretty labyrinthian. So I'm going to rely on Jason and Zach, especially Zach, because Zach's seen it twice. So when we come back, we'll get into some spoilers for See How They Run. Okay, welcome back. We are now on to the spoiler section of See How They Run. So, fellas, first question being, despite some of the scenes being early in the movie, did you guys pick out who you thought was the killer at any point in the movie? For me, it was, it, the movie did a really good job of leaving things kind of ambiguous and open. So honestly, I really didn't have any any one person that I was like, it was them, except with the exception of the detective himself. Cause that was the only uh like random weird accusation that I was like, well, it, it could. I don't know why he would have, but it could have. Um, but other than that, all the other accusations were just like uh, uh, you know, kind of more on the humorous 
side, like the uh, I forget who it was, uh, the the wife or of the actor of the actor or whatever. When she came in, she was like, "It was me." And then, the, <laughs> and then the female cop just immediately, in the name of the law, I arrest you. <laughs> so Scott kind of figured it out pretty early on. No, and I think that's part of the reason why this movie's great is I normally, when I watch movies, I do try to figure out the twist of the movie. I'm one of those people. I, I'm trying to figure it out. And I didn't find myself really that interested in doing that with this movie because I was just having fun. So I wasn't like trying to figure anything out. I was like, okay, let's just see where where we roll. You know what I mean? So, and this is the million dollar question with whodunits because this is part of the fun of it is you're trying to be, do your own little detective work as you're watching it. And I just didn't. I, I didn't. I like the red herring where they open up the suggestion that it could be the, the lead detective. That's what got me. Which I think if they had have pushed that later, they introduced it too soon in the movie for me to to think that it was real. When they introduced that that train of like thought where, hey, it could be him, and then she started doing some research into him, it was too early on in the movie, I think, as somebody who's seen a lot of these movies, where I was like, I, I knew it wasn't going to be him. But if they had have done it differently and they had introduced him as the killer at the end of the movie in traditional whodunit style, that would have been a pretty good twist because I, I'm sure it's been done before, but I can't think of when it's been done before. I was happy with the conclusion. Sometimes with these, I'm, I get to the point where I get to the end and I'm like, uh, it's not as inventive as I thought it would be. I'm not saying that it's super inventive. It was pleasing. I was I was happy with the result of who it was. See, I was I got fooled with the uh, I jumped to conclusions with the detective because I felt like it was long enough into the movie, and all of a sudden, like the mood changed. Like it almost got like serious. Like when they're in the jail, I was like, oh, maybe he did do it. And then the scene when his wife shows up into the that's not my wife. And it's like, well, Joyce is a very common name. And it was the um the commissioner, is that what they're calling him? He was his he was hysterical. That whole movie, he's just hysterical. But um, yeah, that was the only time that I kind of jumped to conclusions was that part right there. I was just gonna comment on what uh you were saying, Scott, about uh the whodunits that put all the red herrings right at the very end before the reveal. Uh Clue did that very well because the entire last of Clue is, you know, oh, this is the ending, but it's not. Actually, this is the ending, but that's actually not, but this is the you know. I think we talked about Clue when we did the Death on the Nile episode, but they also screened it in theaters mm -hmm. with different endings at diff in different locations. Just to piss off everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was it was very brilliant. I think we did discuss that, but yeah, definitely one of my favorites. Let's go to the next part. Uh, in terms of, you know, I was talking about there's a lot of duo teams in this, you know, duo characters. Uh, what was y'all's favorite um, duo characters or individual characters? You mean list what we got? So you had... Adrian Brody's Leo Cup Kaepernick or Kopernick um, as a director. And then you had, he was going up with, oh, with uh, Mervyn. Then you had Dickie Attenborough and Sheila were the two, you know, starlet actors. Then you had Petula Spencer and her mom, they own the theater. Then you had John Wolfe and his wife, Adana, and Anne at the same time. So you had two duos. So, what do you guys think? Who played off the best in terms of, you know, a possible suspect um, duo or individual suspect? 
acting wise performance wise well he's not introduced till later on but i think the butler in agatha christie's house is just really <laughs> awesome he's super that's awesome. honestly that's i was gonna say if i had to pick a duo it would be the butler and and agatha herself because <laughs> she super smug super awesome. smug <laughs> Really, really good. And also Agatha Christie, shout out to the actress that played Agatha Christie is Moaning Myrtle from Harry Potter, correct? Oh yeah. Yes, it is indeed. Yeah, she's great. Speaking of when we're at uh, Agatha Christie's house, I was looking up, did you know that they use her real husband's name as the character that welcomes them into the house? That's her real husband's name is Max Malawin or Malawin. So I oh, thought really? that was- yeah, I thought that was pretty cool because they were married. It was her second husband and they were married for like 40 years. So like that was cool how they, you know, put him into there um, in some way. So I didn't, that was a little info I was kind of treated to earlier. Wasn't there a thing too where Agatha Christie was briefly accused of like trying to kill her husband or her ex-husband? Uh, it wasn't that, it was that she faked her own death at Oh, one that's point. right. Yes. It wasn't necessarily an intentional, but that's the way it came across. Because she had a book coming out. Yeah, she left, she went somewhere, she wrecked her car, and then she like walked off somewhere else and ended up getting in a hotel room. Because uh, I, I think her husband was, she thought he might be having an affair at the time, so she was trying to get the heck out. Oh, okay. He was, he was having an affair. And then he had the affair and she found out about it and then had a breakdown of some sort. And then they found her like 11 days later, like 180 miles away in like this spa slash hotel like because to get better and then when she came back she kind of went into the house and kind of became kind of recluse for a little while didn't like crowds she she said no she wasn't a big fan of crowds she said she wasn't a big fan of the movie theaters or anything like that i was reading she liked gardening and, and writing was basically her thing that is interesting. What do you guys think about the inclusion of Richard Attenborough? Obviously, they it was played by an actor, but um, you know, a Richard Attenborough famously, I guess, probably most famously as John, John, John something, Hammond, John Hammond, John Hammond, Hammond. That's what it John was. Hammond. Yeah. Um, pretty fun though because you know, just a, it's a nice callback to him when he was a younger actor. Um, I thought there's a pretty nice touch putting him in though oh 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 got it yeah the guys who's super into his craft yes (laughs) yes the one that walks out on stage and is like i'm sorry for my limp i had a a war injury it's like come on dude (laughs) yeah the thespian yeah i thought harris dickinson was he did a really good job with the voice and everything i thought that was pretty uh well done okay so what's the actor's name harris dickinson harris dickinson Okay, so interestingly enough, did you recognize Harris Dickinson, Jason, from another movie that just came out recently? Because he's in Where the Crawdads Sing, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he is. He was the he was the uh, the asshole jock. Kind of had the same vibe in both of these movies. <laughs> what did you think about the play within the play? So to speak, and what did you think about the the revelation, obviously, of what the like the main reason for these murders was? I think it's really clever. I I didn't pick up on the whole storyline. Like you hear about the sort of the two brothers when they're you know talking the play when the actresses are on the play and she's talking about it on stage, but it just kind of goes by my head as I was watching it, and then you get to the end of the movie with the usher. 
and he starts telling the whole story and you're like, how did I not pick up on that? How, how did I not pick up on that? Because, you know, they give you the story and by deductive reasoning, as I'm watching it, you know, they did do a really good job of kind of just, I don't know, not passing over it, but they, they didn't really hold they on just to the story. They just kind of dropped it in. Yes, yeah. yes. She didn't do a whole big monologue or there wasn't a big explanation. They they gave you that first part of the play, like the very first couple sentences of the story about how there was two orphan brothers. And then it just goes from there. So as the movie goes on, I'm not even thinking about that. I'm like, the usher is just some dopey usher who got hit with that sandbag. And then you get to the end and he's explaining it and you're like, ah, oh, shit, man. But that's what made it fun too, was that, you know, they gave you that and, you know, people like me, I did not pick up on it. There's a lot just kind of gets dropped in there very subtly. And then I, I, I particularly love the conclusion of the movie where it takes place at Agatha Christie's house in that traditional style, stately home, stately manor. I love how it is mirrored from the play. So we, when we watch the play and when we see like the snow falling outside in the play and then the lights go off and then it, it's directly done again, but in the real world of the movie at the end, when Sam Rockwell comes in from the outside, it's really clever. Yeah, and I also like how on that, uh, how it basically played out how the director pitched the movie. Yes, exactly. Adrian Brody, yeah. <laughs> it was basically everything right down to it, except for the, the house didn't completely burn down, but there was a fire. <laughs> well, I liked how, you know, reading, after this, reading up on Agatha Christie, the poison thing was fantastic because she worked as a nurse and at a, a hospital during the war. So she read up on all these poisons and stuff like that. And then when she does the whole tea thing and the tray gets turned and she's like, oh no, no, that's for Dennis, that's for Dennis. And that was hysterical. That was probably my favorite part. And that was at the end. And that was the best part. They saved it till the very end. I loved it. <laughs> I completely agree. She was she was my favorite character uh, just because of how, like, I don't want to say ditzy, but it was kind of, it was on the verge of being ditzy. You know, devilishly the ditzy tray, and yeah then, uh, <laughs> then with the snow shovel she, she like, throw it raises it up above her head gives this battle cry and then, and then gets stopped because <laughs> i've seen so many movies now that if i was if somebody brought in a tray of drinks and then i witnessed them turn the drinks around like that and be like oh no not that one i'd be like i'm not drinking any of these <laughs> yeah yeah and I love how she just she does it. Like it, I think that that particular scene and this and like the stuff with the butler is just hilarious. It's so funny, especially where he's like inching towards him yes, to try and yes. grab the gun, and he keeps moving and he's moving at a glacial pace, and you can just kind of see him shifting. It's really funny. Everybody's nodding at him and giving him that facial look, and he's like raising his eyebrows, like, "What? What do you mean? What? Are yeah. you serious? <laughs> you want me to grab the gun?" <laughs> And for a second, I thought that the, uh, she had fixed the tea trays right, and so I was—I wasn't surprised, but I was—I laughed when the butler tipped over. A really great visual gag, yeah. Like uh, Jason said too, with uh, Adrian Brody's character's idea for how how the the movie adaptation should work, which is with the like the gunfight and the fire at the end, you know, and then how the movie basically plays that out. I thought it was cute because I I knew I you could see where I was going, so I was like, okay, Shisha Ronan's going to jump in and she's going to take the bullet for Sam Rockwell, and then she's going to lay in Sam Rockwell's arms, and he's going to be like, we have that when we go through the the earlier on with Adrian Brody's idea. We like i think it's like a storyboard that's drawn out with, yes with storyboard, that yeah. on 
And I like that they gave a very small amount of backstory and feel-good drama with um, Stopper, Sam Rockwell's character, and Stalker, Ronan's character, when it, when it shows her as a single mom and she's got her kids and stuff like that. And he's lost, you know, his wife left him because she was pregnant with somebody else's. And, you know, he's cutting out the puzzle board and stuff. They don't focus on that too long, but it, it helps you invest more in those two because – like like Scott was saying earlier, um, I'm a Sorcy Ronan. Um, she was so funny and so not innocent, but so like PG-ish with her interactions. Very she was gung-ho, but she was very innocent. That's what it was. Um, all of her interactions with Sam Rockwell, I thought it's where the best duo for me was. Like they were so good that I could have watched the whole movie. And if that last scene had, if they hadn't played out like that, I would have been disappointed because I like the whole Adrian Brody storyboard scene. And they do, you don't really focus. I didn't focus in on it towards the ending because I wasn't really trying to figure it out. But like, yeah, like you said, that ending was perfect, um, especially with Agatha Christie being in it. So there's a tradition in these movies, not just only in Agatha Christie stuff, but even in stuff like Inspector Morse, like a lot of British serialized detective television. There's a history of having your main detective, even I mean Sherlock Holmes and Watson. So you always have like the sidekick character. Even shows like Monk, the uh, lady detective who's who's his friend and helps him out. What I thought was really nice about this was so in Sherlock Holmes, Watson is well, he's basically Robin to Batman, but. Over time, what's nice about this movie is, for me anyway, and I'm just speaking for me personally, my take on it is it was nice how Sam Rockwell's definitely introduced as the bumbling, mysterious detective. But going back to what I said earlier, I feel like the main character of the movie is Ronan's character. She's like the surrogate for us, trying to figure out what's going on. She's new to new to the job. And I really like how the movie lets her almost take the limelight of the movie and then kind of put Rockwell on the burner for a little bit, which I think is really cool. It's not following that normal route where Rockwell isn't really presented as the hero of the story. He's kind of just there in the story, and he ultimately ends up fulfilling the promise of what his character set up. But it's not like the whole movie where she's sidetracked as just his assistant or just his sidekick i thought that was really effective that that is true yeah like whenever they would split up it, it would always follow her primarily i mean it would show where he went but then it would always go back to her so yeah that, that is a good a good point i didn't exactly think about that but yeah that is a refreshing take you know she is a as you if you watch it she's a much better uh by paper detective because she does, you know, she's writing everything in her book, which was cracking me up because, you know, the her interaction with Rockwell, because he plays kind of like that drunkard, tired, their dialogue is so much different that she comes across like, I would follow her as a detective, honestly, but then I would jump to conclusions because <laughs> she's every, every suspect she meets, she's like, all right, I'm arresting you in the name of the law. And it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> I really like at the beginning of the movie where they're kind of more or less first introduced and she's sitting next to him in the car and he's like, "You re are you writing every single thing down in the book? And she goes, no, I'm just writing like all the things you say. And he goes, so yeah, you are writing everything. Yeah, only the important things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was really good. Shout out to the scene too where she is talking to one of the other guys at the, at the police station at Scotland Yard. 
played by, actually, you know what's funny when I was watching this? A lot of the side character actors have all been in the Inspector Morse show over time. They've all been in, I've seen them in a bunch of British detective shows. So like a lot of familiar faces pop up, but I really like that scene with the biscuits where she's trying to get, yes, they stand yes. over it and she, she's like, do you want a biscuit? He's Slides like, it over. It's Yeah, it, it's really good. And I will say, you know, we, there wasn't a whole lot of crazy cool camera shots, but that one chase scene through the theater where everybody gets up and they're starting to run down corridors and then outdoors and up hallways, down hallways. It gave me like this Ocean's Eleven vibe, like a very fun kind of just what if they're going to get caught, what's going to go down. And then they have, you know, the murder and they, and they they catch Mervyn's being strangled and stuff like that. But that was a really fun camera shot where everybody's going up and just missing each other by a second. I even turned to uh, to Zach in the theater at that point because I was I was cracking up so much that I didn't even care to that I was making a comment in the middle of the film. But I turned to him and I was like, "It's just like Looney Tunes." <laughs> <laughs> or uh, I guess a better example would honestly be like Scooby Doo. Scooby Doo did that a lot. We could have even picked Scooby Doo as one of our Who Done It mysteries. Yeah, well, you know, I wasn't thinking about that. <laughs> Classic duo, uh, Scooby and Shaggy. <laughs> That's there right. There you go. <laughs> I, we don't have to look for criticism. Did anybody have any? Or are you just generally overly positive throughout? Was there anything you thought wasn't that effective? No, uh, honestly, uh, I really liked it as a whole. One of the things that really impressed me about this movie is anybody can watch it. It doesn't matter what age you are. Like Honestly, you could show this on HBO or you could show this on Disney. It doesn't matter. I like that all the way through, it is enjoyable. But it also, I love watching the actual theater scenes. It makes me want to go see this play or really any play because it just seems so, it's been a while, it just seems so energy and energetic and just sitting there. And then almost you'd play out that I'd play this movie out in my head as I'm watching this. And then I'd get up and then start walking around the theater and stuff like that. But I thought it was just a cool take on something that, you know, we don't really get to see, which is the theater side, you know, of um, movie making. Because, you know, we've got Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, they're on a movie set. There's all the movie set stuff, but you never kind of get just a nice theater backdrop uh, movie with a lot of behind the scenes stuff. It was just, yeah, it was fun all the way through. Uh, every scene, all the way up to Agatha Christie's house, I thought it was just, it was funny. Uh, didn't have a whole lot of heavy drama, but it had that mystery, had some violence, but it wasn't bloody or overly bloody. Um, and then it had a great, great written characters in it. So yeah, all the way through, I couldn't find anything that was critical or that you would mark stars off on a rating system for. I think for me personally, at the time I was disappointed, but it ended up working in the movie's favor. But initially, so when the initial murder happens, when Adrian Brody's character gets killed at the beginning of the movie, we get the very typical setup where we see him personally interacting with everybody. And we see how much of an asshole he is. You see his like how he's a narcissist, he's a womanizer. He's generally a pretty uncouth character. So obviously we know it was telegraphed early on that he's the first guy that's going to die, obviously, because we're really following him around. With that being said, in the party at the end of the the performance of the show, where he's going around and then he ends up getting in fisticuffs with Dickie Attenborough, which is pretty fun. Uh, especially that's it. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Um, I think they go through a cake. Yeah, and he's like, they go through a cake. Around. When that murder takes place and everybody freaks out and then Rockwell arrives on the scene and they close down the theater, that's what I was hoping for. I was like, we're not going to leave the theater until we figure out 
who killed Adrian Brody. Now, the movie quickly had no intention of just sticking to that one death and not, and then no intention of sticking to that one location. The reason I was excited is because, well, I just like movies in one location in general. I, I've said this so many times on the podcast, but what was intriguing to me is the location because they were in a theater. And I thought that would be so much fun because there's so many places you can go. You could go backstage, you can go where the, to the bar area, the concession stand, to the to the green room and the and the dressing rooms. The potential for the movie moving around within that could be really interesting because you don't get to see that at all. Now, with the movie breaking off and then following these characters in their lives after the event, and then as we get introduced to more of the characters, initially I was disappointed, I'm not going to lie, but the movie movie kind of redeems itself in my eyes when it actually goes to the location at the end and then we get that payoff that you want. That would be my only gripe because I think they could have done something really clever with that. Yeah, I feel like, you know, you saying that about the ending, I feel like the way they've shot that is like if they had transported that set onto a theater stage, it was perfect when they're in the sitting room and stuff. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah. You're, you're totally right. I did not see it that way. But yeah, if that setting would have been transporting you they would have kept it in the theater that would have been just as good too that's a minor gripe it, it didn't break the movie for me i still enjoyed what i got you know yeah for sure how i kind of see that because i did notice that as well you know uh you know the whole typical everybody's staying here and then they're you know the oh we gotta we gotta open up for tomorrow so everybody get out kind of a thing uh i think what the whole main theme of the movie is and that plays into it is don't jump to conclusions oh 100% yeah yeah totally think it's going to be that and then it's like oh, but it's not and then throughout the whole movie and then even at the end where you know you, you think that uh Sorsha's uh character is going to get shot when she jumps in front nope don't jump to conclusions it wasn't her <laughs> you know it just constantly came up that scene that dream sequence is very much like the shining <laughs> it yeah. gave me little vibes of the shining there that was a great sequence too before we wrap things up what is sam rockwell making in his apartment or his house what's he do is some craft he makes something he's making puzzles yeah he's making puzzles for his the son that he was supposed to have and he made and he made a baby he had a baby cradle too he had made a baby cradle and yeah he's just making puzzle pieces and his little jigsaw going. Yeah, very fitting puzzles within a puzzle, within a puzzle, within a movie, within a play, within a movie. Clever all around, I think. <laughs> the old detective making a puzzle. That's kind of funny. I think it's a unanimous high praise for this movie from all of us. Oh, totally. Totally high praise. Okay, wonderful. And I think that about wraps it up. So before we head off into the sunset, has anybody any recommendations for our listeners? Reading anything good, watching anything good, listening to anything good? Um, I will recommend for movie purposes on the theater. Uh, I enjoyed Pearl quite a bit. It's a little bit different than X. Um, so if you liked X, uh, you at least get to find out uh, you know, the backstory. Um, I really loved it. It's kind of 50-50 with people, so I'm reading. But I really enjoyed the pace, and I was it was one of my most anticipated films, and I wasn't disappointed. So, uh, high recommend for Pearl from myself. And I guess for all you book nerds out there, if you're a fantasy uh, junkie like I am, there's a, a series from um, uh, the first book. It's it's the Lightbringer series is the name of it. First book is called The Black Prism, uh, and that's a, a really good series. It's a pent a pentology, five books. 
Oh, wow. I like that word, pentology. Great word. Yes, it's a fun one. Yeah, you don't get used it very often, do you? But it's... (laughs) Nope. Uh, (laughs) Nope. Zach, you're going to love our A24 tier list. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. You're you're not going to like me after what I said about Pearl, but you're going (laughs) to like that. No, I I, I figured I kind of know where you lean towards Pearl after we saw it. I kind of figured where you're leaning. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I'm, I might change my tune on I don't know. Okay, well, thank you. Thanks, Zach. Oh, Thanks, wait, Jason. Wait, wait, wait. Uh-huh. We got one thing to say. Now that y'all all know who the killer is, it's up to you to not tell anybody. There it is. There it is.